All right, any puzzle, any puzzle fans in the room? Four of us, five of us, all right, a few of you can do puzzles. Um, and I don't know if you, has anyone ever tried to do a puzzle that they didn't know what the outcome was going to be? Anyone ever tried to do one of those? And so maybe you just go and you grab a puzzle piece and you start just trying to put the, put the puzzle together, right? Like, and to start with, like maybe you would, you'd get the outline, you could probably get the border done. You could probably put a few pieces closer together. Now, this 63 piece puzzle, I could probably do without knowing what it is. But if we are doing a thousand piece puzzle, what's gonna happen if you don't know what the picture actually is? You're gonna get frustrated. You're gonna get annoyed. You might finish it, but eventually it's not going to be an enjoyable experience. And what you can do eventually is we can, maybe you just grab a puzzle piece and you start looking at it and you start making guesses of what the entire puzzle is based on one piece. And maybe you look at this and like, well, I'm pretty sure that it's going to be a, a, a shirt. I don't know. And just like, you can just have these terrible guesses about looking at this one piece and it might be a really nice piece. But if we don't see it in its completeness, we're gonna miss the beauty that the puzzle has to offer. And that's kind of what we're doing in this series, this series that we're calling Portraits of a Revolution. What we're doing is we are studying this concept of the atonement, about what Jesus did for us on the cross. And sometimes it's our tendency to stick our hand in the puzzle box, grab one piece and be like, okay, this must be what it is. And we begin to miss the beauty of what happens because what the writers of the Bible are trying to describe for us is a very complex thing. And they're using different metaphors. They're using different, different word pictures to help us understand what Jesus is actually doing. And so the problem is if I just stick my hand in and grab this puzzle piece, maybe I get stuck on this idea of blood sacrifice. And I just think about that and I'm like, okay, well, that's what Jesus did. His blood was what covered me. But if I do that, I miss the beautiful adoption language that we talked about last week. Or, or if I do that, I'll miss this idea of this new Passover or this new Exodus and these things that Jesus is also accomplishing. And so our goal for this series is we wanna start, I should have brought more puzzle pieces, but is to start putting the pieces together, to start seeing the full picture and starting to see what did Jesus actually do? He did so much more than just die for our sins, which he did, but there's so much more that happened on the cross. There's a revolution that happens on the cross. And that's what we're diving through and that's what we're looking through in this series. And so today, we've spent, we've spent the last couple of weeks, we've talked about blood sacrifice and ransom. We talked about this new Exodus and new Passover. Today, we're talking about the great judgment. Now, here's what I want us to think about for just a second. Is I want you to think about some movies that have epic um, scenes that are courtroom scenes. So maybe picture some of these in your mind. This week I was reading some articles about best courtroom scenes in, in movie history, and number one on the list was uh, Legally Blonde. Anybody seen Legally Blonde? You know it's a Reese Witherspoon movie, so I've already confessed this. I've seen Legally Blonde, but this movie, there's this moment where like, she's, like, she's blonde and she acts like a blonde, but she uses all of her knowledge of hair care to eventually be able to, to have this... To, this person who's been accused of murder, she's, she's free. She's set free because of her knowledge of hair care. What about To Kill a Mockingbird? Anybody know this one? We read the book, seen the, seen the film, where the, the guy in the courtroom fails to prove the innocence that has happened. It's like, I don't know, 60 years old now. Like, if you haven't read it or seen it now, spoiler alert, okay? Um, but, like, it's this monumental moment 
Then there's the movie Kramer versus Kramer. I don't know if anybody has seen this, but this one gives us a different view. It's not, it's not a murder, murder scene, but it's a, it's a custody battle. It's a divorce scene that we begin to see. There's the, there's the movie or the book where the crawdads sing. I don't know if you guys saw this, but when Tiffany and I were reading through this book, like there were moments where we were just like cheering, like this, this guy is good. Like there's this courtroom scene as you watch through the film. It's just like flipping back and forth through the courtroom the whole time. And so that's a good courtroom scene. But you, you guys probably know the best one, right? Tom Cruise, right? Okay. Oh, so a few good men. I don't know if you guys have seen this movie, but there's this, this moment in this movie where Tom Cruise's character is Daniel Caffey. And he is, this is a, a war movie, a military movie, so he is defending two, two Marines who have been accused of killing a former Marine, or fellow Marine. And so he's brought to trial and he's doing all of these things. He's finally questioning Jack Nicholson, Jack Nicholas, who, who's asking, who's playing, I don't remember his character's name, but he's asking these questions of him. It's this really intense scene. And finally, he asks these questions like, what do you want from me? And Tom Cruise says, the truth. And what does he reply? You can't handle the truth. You can't handle the truth, right? So monumental, even if you haven't seen the film, you probably know the quote. Like, you can't handle the truth. And finally, they win, and they're, they're, they're set free, and it's awesome. And so here's this courtroom, courtroom pictures, right? And here's the thing. Whether or not we know it or not, if we dive through the scriptures, this is one of the themes that we see play out often through the scriptures, is we see God holding heavenly court. We see God as, as a judge. We see God ruling and reigning from, from this courtroom setting. This is a theme that we see throughout the scriptures. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to see this play out in Isaiah chapter 3. Can they get a lot of work with your fingers today? Because we're going to be flipping through quite a few passages together. Uh, but Isaiah chapter 3 is one of the places where we see this imagery begin to play out. So, Isaiah 3, verses 13 through 15. Here's what he says. The Lord takes his place in court and presents his case against his people. The Lord comes forward to pronounce judgment on the elders and the rulers of his people. You have ruined Israel, my vineyard. Your house is filled with things that are stolen from the poor. How dare you crush my people, grinding the faces of the poor into the dust, demands the Lord, the Lord of heaven's armies. You guys get the picture. The Lord takes his place in court. So we begin to see like Jesus or the Lord is like he is in this courtroom setting. He's but he's judge. He's the prosecutor. He, he's the jury. Like he's he's all of it. So this is this picture that we begin to see. If you dive into the book of Job, we're not going to we're going to read it. But the book of Job and Job one and Job two, it starts with this idea of of God holding heavenly courts. And he asked this question of Satan. So Satan comes to, to this moment, to this heavenly court, and, and God asks Satan, he says, where are you coming from? And maybe as we read that in Job chapter 1 and 2, we're like, well, God, aren't you supposed to know where Satan has been? Aren't you all-knowing? Yes. But everyone else in the room doesn't understand. Everyone else in the courtroom doesn't know. And so there's this courtroom language that we begin to see in Job chapter 1 and 2, where we see God is on this heavenly throne. He's holding heavenly court, bringing people to account, seeing what is going on. So this is a theme that we see playing out all throughout the scriptures. It's this idea of God being a ruler in a courtroom, him being judge. And in Revelation chapter 6... We're going to see what happens when, when the final judgment 
is coming. So we see throughout Scripture, we follow this theme of God in courtroom. God is judge. God is, is, is ruler. And we follow this all the way through to Revelation chapter 6, when John gets a, a picture into the final judgment. Revelation 6, verses 12 through 17 says this. I watched as the Lamb broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun became as dark as a black cloth, and the moon as red as blood. Then the stars of the sky fell to earth like green figs falling from a tree shaken by a strong wind. The sky was rolled up like a scroll, and all the mountains and the islands were moved from their place. Then everyone, the kings of the earth, the rulers, the general, the wealthy, the powerful, and every slave and free person, they all hid themselves in caves and among the rocks in the mountains. And they cried to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lord. For this great day of the wrath has come. Who will be able to survive? I don't know if you guys caught this. But what were people trying to do when judgment was coming? You guys catch the word? Hide. So what do we see in Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve, what do they do when their sin comes out? Hide. What do we see in Revelation chapter 6? People hide. So this is a theme that we begin to see is, is when, we, that when we're faced with our sin, when we're dealing with our sinfulness, that our tendency is to hide. It's what we want to do. It's what we often do. Why? We're going to get in that in just a second. But as we begin to think about judgment and we think about justice, I have to admit I love the idea of judgment and justice if it is against someone who has wronged me. If it is someone who has hurt me or someone who has hurt my family or people that I love, I love when those people get justice and when they get judged and they have judgment. I love that. Maybe you're the same way. Not as big of a fan if it's, if it's me, right? If I'm the one who is deserving of justice, if I'm the one who deserves the punishment, I'm not as big of a fan of the judgment and the justice if, it is, if it's for me. And so as we begin to, to think of this, we begin to think about this idea of judgment, it's not something that we excitedly look forward to, right? It's not something we often are like, I can't wait until the day of judgment. I can't wait until we are judged. Because here's the reality. Most of us know ourselves pretty well. If we think through this hard enough, if we begin to think long enough, we know our sinful conditions. We know what's going to happen once all the evidence is laid out. Like, we know what it's going to look like if our case is, is finally presented in court. We know what that's going to be. We know what the verdict is going to say. And it's going to be, it's going to be guilty. So as this series, the way that we've been diving through this each week is we've been talking about what is the problem, what is the solution, what did it accomplish, and how does it change the way that we live? That's been the, the, the way that this whole thing has, has flowed. So the first thing is like, what is the problem? The problem is our sin. Let's go all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden again. So they're rebellious. They turn against God. After they sin, they hide. And we talked about this just a minute ago because this is what our sin causes us to do. Our sin causes us to hide. So for the very first time, Adam and Eve have experienced something in their life. For the very first time, they have experienced guilt and they've experienced shame. For their entire lives up to this point, they have walked in this feeling of 
of guilt-free life or this shame-free life. And that sounds pretty good, right? Like, that sounds great. And this is where, where they've been. But now they sin. And all of a sudden, guilt enters into the world. Guilt enters into them. And no longer was their verdict not guilty. Now their verdict is going to be guilty. And they know it. And they feel it deep down. And they hide from God. Because here's the reality. Guilt always accompanies sin. Guilt always accompanies sin. Now, whether or not we want to acknowledge it or not is a different story, but it is always, it is always there. We can sear our conscience enough where we don't feel its effects, but that doesn't mean that it isn't there. About, about 10 years ago, Tiffany and I took a, a group of teenagers to, to CIY when we were in the States. And one of the things that we did during that week is we went hiking around some waterfalls in the mountain. And we didn't really know what we were getting into, so we just had like our regular runners on. And as we began hiking around the waterfalls, I don't know if you guys know this, but waterfalls are wet. Um, and there's water around. Fancy that. And so eventually like our shoes started getting really wet. And then we decided, well, everyone was already wet and sweaty. So we just started swimming in the waterfalls and it was awesome. But like we were getting ready to leave the next day and we didn't want to put our wet clothes in with our clean or our other clothes. And so we just put it, put the shoes and the clothes, we just put them in a, a plastic bag, tied it up and took it with us. We get home and a few days later, there starts just to be this little bit of a weird smell around our house. And I'm like, huh, that's weird. Light a candle. Everything's fine. Everything's good. We, we lit the candle and it seemed to go away until the next day. And it was still a little bit weird, a little bit weirder than it was. So we, you know, we open the windows, air out the house, take out all the rubbish, clean out the fridge, and everything begins to smell a little bit better. We're like, okay, great. Problem solved. Until a couple more days passed. And then it was just that moment. It's like something has died. Something, someone has died in this house because it just smells terrible. You would walk into the living room and it would just take your breath away. It was so bad. And so we just go on this mad search looking for what this smell is. And I lift open, I lift up a pillow on our love seat. So it's not the couch we sat on, but I lift up a pillow and I find the bag with the shoes. And it's sitting there. And against my better judgment, I open the bag. And growing on these shoes were things that should not even be grown in a lab, let alone in your house. And it was just this terrible smell, this terrible thing, and there was no redeeming it. We took them straight out and threw them straight in the rubbish. Like, there was nothing we were going to do with that. It was gross, right? But here's the reality. This is, what, this, is what guilt, this is what guilt does. Maybe we don't think about it to start with. Maybe we just think, oh, you know, it's, it's fine. Everything's fine. Everyone's good to go. It's not a big problem. But then eventually it starts to stink. And eventually it's going to come out. And we can pretend that everything's okay in our lives. We can just light a candle and open a window. We can take the rubbish out. We can pretend that there's nothing rotting on our couch. But the reality is this is what guilt does. It gets into us. It soaks into us. We can deny it. We can pretend it isn't there. But guilt always accompanies sin. This week, I was doing some, some research on guilt. I was reading some medical journals on guilt. And one of the things that, that makes guilt really difficult to kind of identify is it begins to, to expose itself in a number of different ways. So one of the things that doctors have a really hard time seeing is people might go into the doctor with a really serious health condition, but they can't find anything wrong. 
Like there are stories of people who literally doctors thought they had cancer, except they couldn't find cancer. They thought there was a serious medical condition that is going on. And the reality, what was it? It was guilt that is slowly eating at people. It's, it's infecting people. And it comes out in a number of different ways. It's physical problems. OCD can be linked to guilt. Depression is linked to guilt. Almost any single psychological problem you can think of, it can be linked to guilt. And one of the things is like guilt is just one of those things that continue to eat at us and continues to get, get into us. You ever had one of those moments where you felt really sick to your stomach after doing something wrong? Where you just knew it wasn't right and it just kind of made you sick? That's just the tip of the iceberg for what guilt begins to do. And David, this is the description that he reaches in Psalm 32. He doesn't have the, he doesn't have the science. He doesn't have the same like, research that we do. But here's the conclusion that David reaches when he thinks about his guilt. He says, when I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away. And I groaned all day long, day and night. Your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. So this is what sin does. This is what our our sinful condition begins to do. It begins to slowly kill us. And whether or not we admit it or not, it is a disease that continues to soak into us. And we know something needs to be be dealt dealt with. Because here's what sin begins to do. Sin not only makes us guilty, it also makes us less human. And so Scott McKnight, in his book, A Community Called Atonement, he refers to this idea as being cracked icons. And we have been created in the image of God. God has set us up in this way. And when we allow sin in our lives, we begin to be cracked icons. We, we be, our, our image of God begins to be cracked and not look the way that it's meant to. Think of it this way. When I was, in, when I was a, a teenager, there was this website, perhaps maybe you've even heard of it, called LimeWire where you could go and you could download all the illegal pirated music that your heart could desire. Like every song that you could possibly want was on this website called LineWire. Every single computer virus you could ever want was also on this website. And so when you would go and you would download these songs and like, so I, I just remember doing this. I was going and like, I was downloading some Nickelback songs. And I know Steven is about to jump on me here, but... I deserved a virus anyway for downloading Nickelback songs, let's be honest. But like I was downloading these songs and the next thing I know, my mom goes to use the computer and nothing is working. And our whole family computer has just been infected with this terrible virus. And so we have to hire a computer technician to come in and fix the computer. Costs more than buying that CD would have cost anyway. But I stopped there, right? You know, I was like, oh, okay, everything's, no, of course not. And so I continued to use this. I had my own laptop, and so I was downloading music there and not really making the connection. It was a little slow, I suppose, of like what was causing these viruses. And at my house still, I don't know why we haven't recycled them yet, there's two laptops that sit on the top of my parents' drawer on top of their presses that are literally paperweights because they were infected with viruses so badly that it was not worth trying to save what had happened. And so they just make a really expensive paperweight. And this is what sin does. Sin takes something that is meant to function in a way, as as our lives are meant to function in a proper way, living out the image of God. Sin begins to infect that. And it begins to break that down where we no longer can function the way that we were meant to. We just become this like expensive paperweight. And our sin has made us less human. 
It's made us guilty. And here's the reality, is the guilty can't come into a presence of a holy God. The guilty cannot come into the presence of a holy God. I never in my life thought that I would love the book of Leviticus, but I do. Back to the book again, like this is what the priests are doing, right? They're helping clear the guilt with these sacrifices so that the people can enter back into, into God's presence. This is what Jesus is doing for us. He's clearing our guilt so that we can enter into the presence of God. We need a better priest. We need a better high priest than Jesus to clear our guilt. And if the guilty can never enter the presence of God, for most of us, we know that's a problem because we know, we know our condition. We know what the verdict is going to be. We know what is going to happen when all of the evidence is laid out before. We know our lives. We know the, the situation that we've made. Because here's the reality, is that sin, sin must be punished. That judgment and justice are going to have their day. So I just want you to think about this passage. It's a passage in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. 2 Corinthians 5.10, here's what it says. Paul writes, For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or the evil that we have done in this earthly body. How does a passage like that make you feel? You don't have to answer that out loud, but just think about that. How does a passage like that that make you feel that we all will be judged for everything that we have done for the good or the evil that we deserve for what we have done in our earthly bodies? How does that make you feel? Because the reality is, judgment is going to come. Justice is going to have its day, one day. Because justice is at the core of God's character and his nature. As we read through the scriptures, justice is at the core of who God is. And maybe that's not something that we really like. Maybe that's not a, a character about God that we're really fond of. Because I think most of us would be a lot more comfortable to, to view God as just like this old grandpa who pats you on your head when you misbehave and say, boys will be boys, girls will be girls. I don't know if that's a saying, but it, whatever. But like, that's the kind of picture that I think most of us prefer. But what about the story that we read in Revelation 6 where people are like, just fall on me and crush me so that I don't have to deal with this? Like, what about that picture? How does these pictures make you feel? As we read about God's justice and his judgment and his wrath through the scriptures, maybe it makes us a bit uncomfortable. But the reality is, like, what God is doing is he's, he is not throwing a, a, a temper tantrum. He, that's not what God is doing. God's justice and his judgment isn't, isn't connected to like ours is. It's not, it's not impure. His justice and his judgment is in a temper tantrum, but it's something that is setting all things right and all things new. As we read through the scriptures, when we see the justice that God is going to do, it's not just the punishing of wrongs. Yes, that's happening, but it's a resetting of things back to the way that they were meant to be. And so as we read through the Old Testament and the New Testament, this is the picture of the justice of God, is that he is going to set things right. He is going to set things new. He's going to put things back the way that they were meant to be. So you can flip to Psalm, the book of Psalms. 146, David describes, or the psalmist describes this really beautifully about the justice and the judgment of God. So Psalm 146, verses 5 through 10. 
Here's what the psalmist writes. He says, But joyful are those who have the God of Israel as their helper, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. He keeps every promise forever. He gives justice to the oppressed and food to the hungry. The Lord frees the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are weighted down. The Lord loves the godly. The Lord protects the foreigner among us. He cares for the orphan and widows, and he frustrates the plans of the wicked. The Lord will reign forever. He will be your God, O Jerusalem, through the generations. Praise the Lord. And I don't know if you guys caught this, but as the psalmist is writing about the character of God, he is using God's love and his justice. He's using them interchangeably. He's just using them to describe what God is and who he is and what he is like. Like he, Remember, he says, he talks about his love. He says he keeps his promises forever. The Lord loves the godly. He talks about how the hope that we have, how joyful we can be, the hope we have in God. But then he begins to talk about his justice, the way that he is going to set things right. God is judge because he is loving. This is what we see in the psalm. This is what we see throughout Scripture. God is judge because he is loving. This is one of the most beautiful things as we read through this. As I read through this psalm, man, i got to be real honest. As I begin to ponder this, I don't know. I don't know if I want a God who isn't a God of justice. I don't know. I don't want a God who is indifferent and unconcerned about the suffering in the world. I don't want a God who could just turn a blind eye to the hurt and to the pain of people in the world, who doesn't care about justice, who doesn't care about sitting, setting things right. Thankfully, that's not the God that we have. Read again of what's happening here. He gives justice to the oppressed, food to the hungry, frees the prisoners, opens the eyes of the blind. He lifts up those who are weighted down. He protects the foreigners. He cares about widows and orphans. And here's the amazing thing. As we walk through the scriptures, you know what God is calling his people to do? This. This is what he is calling people to do. He said, hey, care for these people. If you have been freed, if you have been set free, if you are my follower, you need to be living out this mission. You need to be living out this ethic that I live out because this is what God does. And so his justice can actually be a really good thing. Yeah, it's, it can be scary. But his judgment and his justice is a thing that is a setting all things right, something that we can begin to long for. So in the, in the book, in the, in, in the book, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, we've probably quoted this a, a few times here, but man, this quote is just so beautiful. There's this moment where, where the kids and Susan is having a, a conversation with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. I don't know if you guys remember this moment, um, but there's this question when he says, As, the beaver says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, Susan says, I thought he was just a man. Is he quite safe? I would feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beater, Mr. Beater, Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about being safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. And he's the king, I tell you. I love this idea. Maybe we want to think of, of God as just this really safe thing. Like, well, this is like once again, the, the God that kind of walks around, roads around on a cloud and pats angels on the head as they play his favorite hymn on the harp. But the reality is, he's a lion, but he's good. 
and sin, it must be punishment. Judge, justice and judgment are going to have their day. And if we think about our guilty condition, we think about our sinful condition, maybe for us that brings a little, in, a little fear into our hearts. However, our guilt has been poured out on a perfect Jesus. And now our condition is not guilty. Why? Because he's good. And on the, uh, on the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, Peter is, is preaching this incredible sermon. And he quotes from the prophet Joel, in Joel chapter 2. He quotes from this, and this is what he says in, in Acts 2, verses 19 through 20. Peter says, I will cause the wonders of heavens above and signs of the earth below, blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will become dark and the moon will turn dark red before the great day of the glorious Lord arise. And so here's what, here's what, Paul, what, what Peter is getting at. He's quoting once again from, from Joel chapter 2. And as we begin to read this and we start to read in the, the context of Joel 2, there's this moment where the people of Israel have been sinful and they have lived their lives apart from God and there's judgment that is coming. Locusts are getting ready to come and devour the land. Then there's this shift that begins to happen is the people of Israel, they move to repentance and they turn away and God turns away the, the punishment that is coming to them. And this is the context of this passage. And finally, the judgment is going to be not poured out on Israel, but on the enemies of God, on God's enemies. That is where the judgment is going to be poured out on. And so God's judgment is not based on just punishing their wrongs. God's judgment and justice is not just light being or darkness being exposed to light. It is the setting all things right. Yeah, it's a slide. God's judgment and justice is setting all things right. Man, and I think as followers of Jesus, this is where we can find a lot of comfort. Because I'll be honest, if I look around our world, man, it hurts. It hurts to see the condition of our world. It hurts to see the brokenness in our world. When I walk through Galway and I see homeless people on the street, it hurts. So it's a comfort knowing that God is going to set things right. When I hear about unborn babies' lives being ended, it breaks my heart. I know that something is not right. When I hear about people being murdered or people taking their own lives in suicide, there's something about that. I'm just like, this is not right. This is broken. And you guys, if you've ever watched the news, which I know you have, you ever turned on social media, you feel this. That there is something that is not right in our world. It is not going the way that it's supposed to go. So come, Lord Jesus, please come and set things right. And that is the promise of the scriptures that, that this great day of judgment is that Jesus is going to come back and he is going to set things right. Because falling humanity is so serious that we need divine intervention, that we need this. We need this moment. And so the message of the cross is that God comes and brings out perfect justice by the means of his own body on the cross. So judgment is coming. Justice is coming. Maybe it's not one that brings us a lot of comfort, but it's a beautiful thought that Jesus and God, God is a perfect judge. He doesn't pollute justice the way that our world does. He doesn't, he doesn't break it down and pervert justice the way that our world might. He is perfect. He is a perfect judge because... To quote Mr. Beaver, he is he's good. And so on the cross, 
we see most clearly God's love and his justice. So what we see on the cross of Jesus is not just the forgiveness of our sins, which that is part of it, but it's the setting this world right, to dealing with injustices again, to helping deal with the problem of sin. And the old preacher Desmond Tutu, I love what he says. He says, forgiveness is not cheap. It's costly. Reconciliation is not an easy option. It caught God the death of his own son. So the crucifixion, it is, it is God placing himself under his own sentence. He, he's dealing with it. What we see throughout scriptures is, is Jesus is both the judge and the judged. He absorbs our guilt. He absorbs our sin onto himself. That's the solution. That's the, we have a problem. We've, we've pretty, pretty clearly covered that. The solution is that Jesus absorbs our guilt onto ourselves. And one of the most beautiful places that we see this is, is a prophecy that Isaiah gives in Isaiah 53. It's known as the, the suffering servant. Where Isaiah is painting this picture for us about what Jesus is going to do and what is going to happen with Jesus' life. And so let's, Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 9. Here's what Isaiah says. He says, Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root on dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquitted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care, yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrow that weighed him down, and we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. He was pierced for our rebellions. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be made whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We have left God's path to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to be slaughtered, like a sheep is silent before the shearers. He did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led laid away, led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done. He had done no wrong. He had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. As we begin to walk through this and we begin to see this, we, we see that the suffering servant is suffering not for his sin, but for whose? Let's say that together. Not for, not for his sin, but for whose? Ours. Our sin. He is absorbing our sin, our guilt. He has taken it on himself. Get this. Our, we turned our backs on him. It was our weakness, our sorrows, our rebellion, our sins. We left the path to follow other people. We may have looked at it and people might have thought, hey, this guy is really messed up. He has done a lot of things worthy of crucifixion. But the reality is it was us. It was our sinfulness that he is willing and he has taken. He is absorbing on his own body. He is absorbing on himself for us. And so the problem is that our sin our sin has made us guilty. And when the day of judgment comes and we stand before the courtroom, we know, we know what the verdict's going to be. 
Like we know in ourselves, we know the situation, we know what the answer is going to be. But then the story is that Jesus, our defense attorney, steps forward and he provides the evidence. And then this, this verdict that was going to be guilty, it is now switched to, to not guilty because Jesus has come and Jesus has absorbed this guilt onto himself. And so in this one moment, in this one instant, there is this moment where we knew that we were guilty. I don't know if you guys have seen enough of the, like, these, these movies or shows with like courtroom stuff, but like, you know the feeling where someone is sitting before the judge and they know what the, they know what the verdict's going to be. Like, they don't need the jury to come back. They know the answer. They know they're guilty. But then there's this miraculous thing that happens. For us, it's our guilty condition is Jesus steps in and Jesus, our defense attorney, he shows the evidence of our guilt being absorbed into his own perfect body and our sins being dealt with once and for all. And we hear this call. When the gavel drops, it's not guilty. So what happened? What happens in this moment? Like, how does this happen? This is one of the things that theologians call the great exchange. So in 2 Corinthians 5, again, Paul talks about this. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, says this. So once again, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made Christ, who had never sinned, to be an offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. So Jesus goes and he absorbs our sin and in exchange, we get his righteousness. It's a pretty good deal, right? Like Jesus absorbs our sin and our death and our guilt onto himself so that we can have his righteousness so that when Jesus, when God looks at us, he sees us as, as right. This is this cool word called justification. Very churchy word, um, and so we're not, we're not going to unpack all of it. It, it means, it's a lot of meanings. We could, we could use a lot more metaphors to understand this word, but it's this idea of being looked at. We're justified just if I haven't sinned. This process of what God and what Jesus has done for us. This is why Peter, as he's finishing that sermon in, in Acts 2, this is why he says that anyone who calls on the Lord will be saved. Because of what Jesus has done for us. We can have confidence in this. Because of this exchange that has happened, because Jesus has been willing to absorb our guilt onto himself, we can stand before God as not guilty. Because Jesus has absorbed this, this guilt into himself. We can have confidence if we are living a life of wholehearted devotion, if we are completely committed to following after Jesus, we can be, we can be sure of what this day of judgment is going to bring. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to fear. I want us to listen to the way that Isaiah ends, Isaiah 53. So in verses uh, nine or 10 through 12, he continues on in this beautiful statement, this beautiful story. Let's read Isaiah 53, 10 through 12. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and to cause him grief. Yet when his life was made as an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life and the Lord's good plans will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that was accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, because of his experience, the righteous servant will 
My righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he, bear, he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. There's a few things I want to make sure that we don't miss here. In verse 11, don't miss that word satisfied. It's beautiful. That Jesus is satisfied with what his death accomplished on the cross. Once again, he's not, this isn't a reluctant sacrifice. Jesus isn't saying, oh, I don't really want to die for this person or that person. No, like he will be satisfied with what ended up happening. He will look at the anguish. He will look at the pain. He will look at everything that he dealt with for you and for me, and he will be satisfied. Why? Because what we see at the end of verse 11 where it says, for many to be counted as righteous, for he will bear their sins. Don't miss that exchange language again. This exchange language that we see, the guilty, the sin is there. But now, because of Jesus, they can be counted as righteous. Because Jesus absorbs this guilt. He absorbs this onto himself. And now the righteous can stand before God. In the end of verse 12, I think I don't want us to miss this. This little statement, it says, He bore the sins of many and interceded for the rebels. He interceded for the rebels. So we begin to look at that word interceded. If we look at that word in the Hebrew, it's pagah. And a fascinating thing about this word is we look at this in its most literal translation. Here's what it means. It means to, to make physical impact on an object which will result in death or harm. So to make physical impact on something that will cause death or harm. Isn't that what Jesus does on the cross for us? He quite literally makes a physical impact on our, on our sin problem. He makes a physical impact on something that is going to cause death and harm. This is what he has done for us. And the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 7, he says, Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on our behalf. So on the cross, Jesus intercedes for this, this thing, this problem that's going to cause pain and cause harm and cause death. He, he intercedes. He, he makes an attack on sin and on death. And now he sits with God and he intercedes on our behalf. And so this life that we live, this condition of guilty has now been reversed because Jesus interceded for that. Jesus dealt with that for us. He was willing to take it on to his own body. We already read from Psalm 32, but it's my favorite psalm in the Bible. So I want to go back to Psalm 32 and just look at verse 5. If you've heard me teach on forgiveness, you've, you've probably heard this point before, but I don't want us to miss it. It's beautiful. We've been talking about this throughout this series already, but we can't miss this. So Psalm 32, verse 5. He says, Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. Once again, what do we do with our guilt? We hide, right? So he says, I stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Now, there's a part of this passage that kind of seems unnecessary. Because as we read this, it's, it's the phrase, all my guilt is gone. 
If we read it without that, like, it still makes sense. It's still a good deal, right? It says, I confess my sin to you, I stopped trying to hide, and you forgave me. It's a pretty good deal, right? But that's not where it stops, does it? No, it says, all my guilt is gone. This is, this is what's happening. Is God is not just wanting us to live in this life of guilt anymore. Not only is our verdict not guilty, but we can live a life with our emotions and with our feelings feeling free, feeling not guilty. We can know because Jesus has dealt with this that we are not guilty anymore. So we live as people who are freed. We live as people with a not, gurdy, or not guilty verdict. Man, it would be silly if someone stands before a courtroom who has been accused of murder and they are said, there's no evidence free to go. And they're like, hey, can you just lock me up anyway? I know I'm free, but like, can I just be here anyway? Like, no, that's not what's going to happen. So we can leave as people who are free so we don't live as guilty people in thought or in action. So how does this change the way that we live? Because we have experienced justification, we continue the process of sanctification. Now, two good church words there for us, right? So let's, let's, let's unpack this really quickly. Since I have experienced justification, since I have been made right, since this great exchange has happened, since my guilt has been absorbed on, Jesus has absorbed my guilt, he has justified me, made me right with the Father. As I stand before him, I know that but my, my, my verdict is now not guilty. Since that has happened, I continue into the process of sanctification. So a good definition that we use here of church, of sanctification, is this idea of, of, cern- of sinning less and less. What we start to do is when we realize how we have been freed, when we realize the way that God has rescued us and the way that he has absorbed our sin into himself, we begin this life of living a, faithfully for him. And we start this process becoming more and more like Jesus and we begin sinning less and less. We continue living a life that begins to look more and more like Jesus. So we can look at that passage in, in Psalm 156 or 146, and we can see the way that God cares for the, for the people that God cares about. And we're going to say, hey, that's the people that I'm going to care about. As I begin to look more and more like Jesus, I'm going to care. I'm going to live like that. We read through the Gospels and we see the way that Jesus loved people. He loved the Father. He put him first above all. We're saying, okay, that's what I'm going to be about. That's what I'm going to do as we have been set free. Back to Psalm 32 as we get ready to wrap up here. So David says, like, my guilt, my sin was holding me down. It was crushing me. He says it's time to confess your sin so that you can be freed your sin can be forgiven. Then we move to this moment of of sanctification where where we walk away from that sin. We repent of that. We start coming closer to God. We start looking more like Jesus. We don't just continue sinning so grace may increase. Paul talks about this. But instead, we move to this life that looks more like Jesus. But Paul writes, or David writes in verses 6 and 7, he says, Therefore, let the godly pray to you while there is still time that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. For you are my hiding place. You protect me from my troubles. You surround me with songs of victory. Notice the transition that begins to happen. David has spent his life, he has spent time hiding because of his sin and his guilt. And he's saying, friends, while there is still time, quit hiding. And rather hide yourself in the one who gives victory. 
Rather, hide yourself in the one who has absorbed his sin onto himself. Rather than hiding from your guilt, pretending it's not there, living this life of sinfulness, he says, move away from that. Quit trying to hide and hide yourself. Find yourself comfortably in God and in him and in his word. Friends, we can't continue to hide. It's when we come out of hiding that we find hope. So we step into the light. We do, we find the freedom that Jesus offers us. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you. God, we thank you that you took our sentence and you took our, you took it, our guilt onto yourself. God, we know what the verdict says. We know that we are meant, to, we, we're, we know our sin issue. But God, we thank you that you were willing to do something about that. That now the courtroom can say, that the judge can say not guilty because of what you have absorbed in on yourself for us. And God, I pray that today, if maybe, maybe some of us here in this room, we, we haven't acknowledged our guilt. We haven't acknowledged our sinful condition. God, I pray that today is the day that we do that. And we can take a step of repentance, a step towards you to doing the things that you call us to, to living the way that you call us to live. God, it's my prayer that we don't just sit here and hear what you have done for us and exchange for us and, and go back just continuing living a sinful life or these lives of sin. But God, we like David, while there is time, we confess our sin to you so that we can be healed. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It is finished. He has done it. Let your weary I'll rejoice Our redemption is accomplished Raise a shout with ragged voice And go bravely into battle Knowing he has won the war It is finished and we